night, chapter 12, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and they'll get one into your hands so you can follow along, not only with your ears, but also with your eyes. And then, of course, if you don't own a Bible, we want everyone to own a Bible and to read a Bible and to know the Bible. So make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Proverbs chapter 12, we pick things up in verse 24. And Solomon writes, and by the way, we've been away from it a little while. So this is a book related to God's wisdom and wonderful to realize that um, we don't have to discover wisdom on our own. Um, we don't have to uh, come up with our own ideas about what is wisdom and how to live our own lives. We certainly don't have to fall prey to this grand experiment that is going on all around us as man is trying to fashion his fellow man with his own wisdom and all of the casualties that come out of that. God has given us his wisdom right here in his book. Every single one of us can live a life that is of a higher quality and, uh, and a more blessed, uh, not by understanding God's wisdom in his word, accepting that as, as the wisdom for our lives, and then obeying it. I mean, I mean, the sooner you come to know the Lord, the better, Right? Less bumps, less bruises, less banged up and knocked around by the world, our own wisdom, the world's wisdom. And here I just pinch myself for the quality of life that we get to live under God's wisdom. The things that he teaches us in the book of Proverbs, some of these things, they, they, each one of them we go one after the other and we can only spend a short period of time on them. And then sometimes the teacher takes a long time to even get to the first one. And, but... You know, some of the things we're going to look at, some people will spend six months, some people will spend three years, some people will spend ten years learning the truth of just one of these Proverbs on their own. I mean, you, we can invest our whole life and, and just discover five or six Proverbs on our own that are just laying on the page for us, page after page in the book. Chapter 12, verse 24, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man, and God has very little patience with lazy people, the lazy man will be put to forced labor. So God tells us that in general, it is the diligent person who will rise into positions of leadership in whatever situation that they're in unless the organization or the government or whatever is corrupt. And so there really is this diligence is rewarded. The world, when something is going sideways, whether it's a business or whatever it might be, people are on the look for diligent people. They aren't a dime a dozen uh, anymore if they ever were. 
And those people are then noticed and they're put in positions of significance. The lazy man will be put to forced labor. In other words, laziness leads to low positions uh, in life. So if a person will not work hard out of their own work ethic or out out of their own internal uh, character, if a person doesn't have that, hasn't developed that in their life, then they force themselves to, in life to be put into heavily supervised positions where it's like forced labor or where somebody says, all right, I've got a job for you. If, you don't, if we don't keep an eye on you, you fall asleep or you sit in the bathroom for seven out of the eight hours that uh, we're working here. And so we're going to put you in a heavily supervised situation. I had a friend... Um, Many years ago, he helped me to uh, meet my wife, and I'll be forever grateful for him uh, for that. But he worked at uh, he worked at uh, Sun something, um, whatever the brand is, prunes. Napa used to be known for prunes as much as grapes. Now it's all grapes and no prunes. Probably a good call on their part, um, just in the tourism trade, but. He worked at the Sunsweet uh, prune place, and he'd get a newspaper, and he'd end up in the restroom, and he'd be gone for hours. Well, he's just lazy. And, uh, I, again, I owe him a great deal because he brought the gift of my wife into my life. But uh, he was the kind of guy uh, that had to be put in that kind of a heavily supervised position because he had no work ethic of his own. I remember I, when I was working kind of in the work world, I held positions that were non-management and management. And, um, and I didn't care for the management positions. And um, always, when they wanted to make them permanent, I would opt out of them. I had enough problems <laughs> without taking on the problems of the company. And um, so, but there were always these people that would... You know, the management would sometimes be complaining about the quality of the workers, and then the workers that weren't in management, they would be complaining about how stupid the managers were. And sometimes people didn't, couldn't see, you know, both ways on the thing. But there are a lot of people that I worked with that they're just lazy, as lazy as could be. And, um, and, and the reason that they didn't get promoted, the reason that they were put in the positions that they were in is they were just untrustworthy and squawk as much as they might against this and that and everything's lined up against me. The lazy man will be put to forced labor, put in a position where he's heavily supervised. Verse 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, brings him down. That's what anxiety does in our lives. Doesn't, it doesn't do any good in our lives at all. Worrying, anxiousness. And so it, it puts a melancholy in our life, a depression in our life. But, the, but Solomon goes on to say, but a good word makes it glad, the heart of man glad. So here we are a little bit depressed or um, melancholy over some kind of anxious situation, some situation in our life that's making us anxious. And then somebody brings a good word to us, a word of encouragement. Immediately we're picked up. Isn't it amazing the power of encouragement, isn't it? Somebody brings encouragement. Barnabas in the book of Acts, he was a son of consolation. He was an encourager. We really need encouragers in the body of Christ. Don't go quiet if you have that gift of exhortation or encouragement. 
We desperately need it. When somebody comes in and has that gift, or even a person that doesn't have that gift comes in and they've got a good word for us, can turn everything around in our hearts. And so uh, may that uh, recognition in our hearts for the need of encouragement in people's lives be something where we're looking now to be in an encouragement. There's no greater word of encouragement that we can bring to another person's heart that is experiencing anxiety because of some situation in their life than to bring some promise of God's Word. To say, this is what God's Word has to say about your situation. This is the end story. This is where it all ends up. This is what God does. You can bet your life and your eternity on that. His Word here, that's what's going to happen. You're going to make it. Now unto Him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the Lord at the end of the age, whatever the promise might be, boy, it comes up against that depression that can be in our lives. The righteous, verse 26, should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads many astray. And one of the keys to a righteous life is to be very, very discerning about who we make our friends and who we make our influencers. We can know a lot of people. We can speak into a lot of people's lives. We can endeavor to be an influence for God in people's lives, but who we give a position of influence back into our lives, um, who we give that kind of a place uh, into our lives, the righteous has to be careful to choose his friends uh, carefully. And I like that phrase it says. It speaks of the fact that the righteous should choose his friends carefully. We need to do the choosing We don't allow people to become our friends or to become our influencers just because they want a place in our lives. That's a position of privilege. That's a position where someone has to be an influence for righteousness in our life. So it doesn't mean everybody who wants to be in our life, everybody who wants that kind of a place in our life gets that kind of a place in our life. We get to, we choose who we're going to give that kind of position to. Nowhere is that more important. It's important in every age group, but certainly uh, very, very important in youth. And uh, I think at the beginning of any school year to speak to our uh, youth and to say, listen, you're beginning a school year now, and there are going to be a lot of options in terms of friends, and you choose your friends. Don't let people choose you. Don't give that friendship and that place of influence to just anyone because uh, part of the key to staying righteous is that you choose your friends and the right kind of friends. He's saying, too, that the wicked don't have any discernment about who they make their friends, and so uh, they allow the wicked to become their friends, and the wicked lead the wicked into even greater wickedness. And that's a terrible, terrible cycle, but it's a real cycle in life where a person just allows anyone to be an influence in their life, and the wicked so often will fill that vacuum where maybe godly parents aren't there, godly friends aren't there in that position, and this is the group of people that will accept that person, make them feel a part of the family. But it's all wickedness that they're, they're gathered around, and then they pull a person into wickedness. They become wickedness, and then they just compound... Uh, their influence upon one another. And that kind of a thing uh, happens uh, regularly. And, 
and uh, really makes casualties of people. But praise the Lord, the Lord really can break through in those kind of situations where a person can feel very vulnerable, feel like I don't have any friends in the world, nobody takes any interest in me, and yet this group of people, it might be a gang, it might be a criminal, it might be a hoodlum, it might be whoever, this person's taking an interest in me, and they start to pull them into that life, and then how often God, and for so many of us in the room, God just steps in somewhere in that whole progression when our eyes become open to the folly of that path that we're on, rescues us out of it, and uh, brings us into a righteous life. The lazy man. Again, God, he's not, not into laziness. The lazy man doesn't, does not roast what he took in hunting. So he goes out hunting, but he's so lazy he won't cook what he hunt, you know, what he killed uh, to, to eat. But diligence is a man's precious possession. And so this is speaking about using hunting as an example, but it speaks about the man or the woman who doesn't finish what they begin. They start all kinds of things. They go out the greatest intentions. They go out hunting, but then they uh, actually shoot something or capture something, and then they lose interest in it before now they even cook it to eat it. And so the importance of having the diligence to complete the tasks that we begin. There's some people that they, um, you know, uh, where they look at a situation, and that situation it isn't done until it's done. I mean, they, they're a certain kind of person who will never stop dealing with a problem or a situation or a project until it's done. It's in them. They'll go crazy until it is done. And then there's another group of, uh, another kind of person who starts one thing after another, takes it to 50%, takes it to 70%, abandons it, and then moves on to the next thing, never ever gets finished. And there's a need for diligence to finish things. No elbowing uh, a husband or a wife on your left or on your right. So the importance of finishing what we begin. Verse 28, in the way of righteousness is life. In other words, righteousness leads to a blessed life. It leads to the life that God intends. How many of us here tonight know that the righteous life, the life that God has intended for us, is the greatest life you can live? (laughs) We do. For all of its problems, all of its trials, all of its what, I mean, what would we exchange it for? It is the greatest life, the greatest privilege to, to live this life. And the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. In other words, the blessedness of the righteous life, it doesn't end with death. The blessings go on into the life to come. And then they are our portion forever and ever and ever. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. I don't know about you, but I'm alive, believe it or not. I have believed in him. You have too if you're a Christian. The Bible says we'll never die. We'll just move from this body into a body that's made for us in heaven. And we'll go on to experience the blessings of a righteous life for eternity. Wonderful. Chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction. And the idea is that the father is giving godly instruction. But the scoffer does not 
listen to rebuke. And so the uh, writer is telling us that it's wise to listen to a father's instruction. This generation gap thing, I don't know. I suppose it's always been going on. It was really a big deal in the 60s, which was kind of formative years for me and for my generation. So there was the whole generation gap, generation gap, generation gap. And there's probably always been a little bit of something like that, but never as pronounced as what happened in the United States in the 60s probably and in terms of a kind of a current dynamic of things. And this whole thing where a younger generation begins to be indoctrinated into believing that the older generation has nothing to say to them because the world has changed and what can they know. And you know the old saying about how mom and dad were just like stupid when you're 16 and 17 and then when you're 25 they're a little bit smarter and by the time you're 30 they're just uh, geniuses. And uh, why? Because you get in the school of hard knocks yourself and you realize, all right, I thought I was so smart. My generation was telling me this. But there are certain things that are true in every generation. And mom and dad tried to tell me these things before I banged myself up as bad as I did. And no generation is a wise generation that disregards what the previous generation has to say to them. And especially when you have godly parents who will speak uh, into uh, our lives. Uh, they know more than sometimes they're given credit for, but just by virtue of having been around longer. I mean, you just, you learn a lot by just hanging around in any area of expertise. And if a person is a godly person and they're living for God in this world, you're picking up a lot of wisdom to pass on to somebody. And, and so just by virtue of living. Another thing that a godly parent has that uh, they probably uniquely have to pass on uh, to their sons and to their daughters if their sons and daughters will receive it and treat it as something valuable is that the biological father and mother, they recognize the gene pool that their kids are working with they can look at their son or look at their daughter and go, oh, no, they got that from me. Or, oh, no, they got that from her or him, whatever. But it is true, all kidding aside, we do recognize the things in our children's life and we realize, wow, God really had to do some things um, to make me realize that that wasn't an asset I thought it was an asset. I thought that was something to build the foundation of my life on, and it was nonsense. And then we realize how much God had to do to teach us otherwise there, and then how much we then look at our children and realize, I'm not going to wait until they're 19, 20, 22, 25 to try to speak into their life on these issues. I'm going to begin from the day of their birth when I see these trends and I'm going to begin to fashion them in a way that in some cases I wish somebody had done in my life or in our life. Um, and isn't it interesting how you can recognize your own uh, characteristics in your children very, very early. I mean, we're not waiting until they've potty trained even and we're recognizing all kinds of personality traits and all. And, and here is a a father, speaking of a godly father here, 
speaking of a mom, but it includes that. A godly parent can look at a child, speak into that child's life, and save them five years, ten years, twenty years of a misdirected life and wasted time if they would just listen to what the previous generation learned. So this generation gap is stupid, and it's not a biblical thing, and it's not a godly thing. We have something to learn both ways for sure, but the younger generation toward the older generation and uh, so that we don't spend half of our life learning what a parent uh, would have uh, been able to tell us in half an hour. And it would be something for a child. Of course, the, the dad would die of a heart attack, but it would be something in this culture if a child went to a dad uh, in their youth or even in young adult and say, Hey, Dad, you're a godly man. You walk with God. You see me. You know me probably better than anybody else in the whole world. And what would you speak into my life? And then to give that dad a half hour to speak. That half hour could save you decades by what might be spoken by a godly father and then taken uh, to heart. The scoffing son he thinks he has all the answers, and uh, you can't tell him anything, and so he won't listen even to rebuke. Verse 2, uh, a man, and the idea is a righteous man, shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth. And so here is a man whose speech is a blessing. His speech is beneficial to other people. Good things come out of his mouth toward other people. And because he is righteous, he is blessed by being a good influence in people's lives, and God will bless him uh, as well. So the righteous man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth. He'll, he'll be blessed. People will bless him as a result of it. But the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. And so the unfaithful person doesn't desire to bless people, but desires to take advantage of people, to hurt people, to gouge people, and all of those things will one day come upon him uh, by others. You reap what you sow is another way of putting what that proverb says. Verse 3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life. Uh, During World War II, they had the sign that went up, loose lips sink ships. Bad dental work, i got to go slow on that. And the idea was you didn't know who was who was who from where and who was a spy and who was listening and all of these kind of things. And so you kept things quiet. When ships were going to go out across the Atlantic to Europe loaded down with supplies, they didn't want the U-boats to know where those ships were going to be, what was going to be on those ships, movement of troops, all these kind of things like that. And so a lot of times as the writer is speaking of of us here. It teaches us, he's teaching us to be careful about what we say because um, we, if we uh, guard our mouths, it can keep us out of a lot of trouble. Have any of you ever, don't shout out. Have any of you ever gotten in trouble by something you said? No, I know. They all go to Shelter Cove. I say that affectionately. No, we all have, haven't we? We can, we can spare ourselves so much problem. I got, I got into so much problem with my mouth in school. and oh. 
Excuse me just for a moment. This is, the Bible says not to look back, so I'm going to come back today. And I still, uh, like everybody, still make mistakes. And you go, oh, brother. But, it, it, you know, saying the wrong thing can even uh, lead to death, what he's saying here. So it's really serious to guard what comes out of our mouth. And he says, but he who opens wide his lips, we would call that person a big mouth. Um, and that's kind of a derogatory thing, but that's kind of what he's saying. And there are big mouths. We know what it is to be a big mouth, all of us maybe. Uh, well, I do, so I'll just stop including all of you. But he who opens wide his lips shall have uh, destruction. And so there are uh, people who have a big mouth, and we will say everything that comes into our minds, and as a result of, of it, we can end up bringing all kinds of trouble into our lives, and it can even cost us our life, and, and uh, that happens all of the time. And so the importance of self-control in our speech can be life and death and important. Verse 4, the soul of a lazy man. All right. Listen, I'm not going to have lazy people stand, but there must be a lot of this going around because he addresses it a lot. You say, oh, yeah, there's a lot of them. Well, here we go, another one. The soul of a lazy man desires. He wants everything. He wants a home at Pebble Beach. He wants one of these new Mercedes. I was reading just recently that Mercedes is just, they've never sold more Mercedes in their whole history than right now. I see them all over the place. They're beautiful. The cars are either beautiful cars. But when you drive a Yaris, you everything looks so beautiful. <laughs> And that's my own fault. That's nobody else's fault. So I'm, I can't really. But the lazy man, he desires all kinds of things. And yet he has nothing. And so he's got all these dreams. He's got all these desires. But because he's lazy, he's not willing to work. He's never going to attain to those desires. There will always just be a dream for him. Not just Mercedes or homes over there, but really uh, anything. And and uh, the soul of the diligent, he says, shall be made rich. And so it isn't uh, desire um, isn't enough to become materially prosperous. Uh, everybody wants to become rich or materially prosperous, uh, but the desire has to be coupled with real diligence, work ethic, and some discipline. And, um, and, and that's how these dreams or these desires uh, come true. And, of course, this is even more true related to ministry. And I can desire all kinds of things related to God would do this and God would do that and this would happen and all. And I remember a, a Bible teacher, but without diligence, without hard work. I've, I've heard many pastors say it many times in different ways through the years that um, the, the speak of how much hard work is behind the scenes on anything that, you know, looks like it's just kind of happening. I remember a Bible teacher, if I were to mention his name, most of you would would recognize it, but he was at a conference and it was a Q&A session and somebody asked him about his Bible studies and his teaching and all of this and and, um, you know, he's got commentary sets and he's got a study Bible named after him and all these different kind of things. And, you know, what did he attribute that to? And you're waiting for with bated breath for some kind of a hyper spiritual answer. And he said, well, the fact of the matter is I just keep my seat in my desk chair studying 
longer than the average person. And it was just his way of saying there's a lot of hard work behind what looks like it's just happening. And, and that's true in life, but it's also true in ministry. A righteous man hates lying. Do you hate lying? It's a mark of char- characteristic of a righteous man is that we would hate lying. You have to be careful here as Christians today because uh, lying's just become um, so commonplace that it's accepted. I can hardly watch television news anymore. So they got this thing and they're dealing with the budget and then they got this thing over here and they got the health care thing over here and then they got this thing over here and they got this guy and they're bringing on this senator and they're bringing on this person from the House of Representatives and they've all got their angles and they've all got their everything and all and they get them on and they've all got their talking points and they lay the whole thing out and it's just learned lying. I just look at the TV and I go, liar, (laughs) liar. How stupid do you think we are out here? Well, it must work. But they're not fooling me, I'll tell you that. But lying has become institutionalized. It's become accepted. It's become something that's so common that um, it's not an affront sometimes to us. And in a culture where that's happened, we have to keep that bar high related to our own lives and uh, the righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. And so the warning against lying, that it always leads to shame. Uh, uh, again, don't raise your hands. You ever been caught in a lie? No, of course not. Is that like one of the most embarrassing experiences in life? <laughs> it really does lead to shame. And uh, it's a painful experience when you're young, and it's really a painful experience when a person gets caught in that who is older, and it leads to shame. And so the warning against uh, lying, the Lord can never, Jesus, we're ambassadors for Christ, he can never be properly represented by way of a lie. And so truthfulness in our lives. It's the best way to live. Verse 6, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. In other words, righteous, the righteous life is a safe life. It's a protected life. It really is. On the physical level, it keeps us from so much harm, obeying God's word. We're not, it keeps us from being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It keeps us away from um, centers of temptation and centers for sin. And, and so uh, righteousness really protects us. It, it is a safe life. And it says, but wickedness overthrows or literally makes to slip the sinner. In other words, sooner or later, all wickedness catches up to the sinner. I've been reading Isaiah as a part of my devotional life here recently and this one phrase is repeated two or three times in the book and and the bible says there is no rest for the wicked the lord spoke to isaiah and to the nation of israel sometimes we look at the wicked and it looks like oh it's just one party after a time you know and now the more wicked or the more goofball you are now they're going to give you a reality show or something and and 
you know, extol the whole kind of thing and it makes it look like it's all this or all that, though some of them you look at. One time I was, I won't tell you what show it was, but um, uh, because I'm embarrassed. Uh, I, for I, for 45 seconds, I'm trying to get to like a game on the television. I go through this thing and it's this whatever and I watch it and it's like a cat fight. I could not get that remote channel over that quick enough. That's on television and people watch it. Who needs the aggravation? So, but it is an expose of the fact that, hey, it's not everything it's cracked up to be. I mean, the life that we're living, that's the life. Verse 7, there is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. A couple different ways that this proverb can be interpreted. One thing it teaches us is you can never tell a book by its cover, can you? And uh, sometimes, and today especially in our culture, in the United States of America, you've got... Any, anybody wears anything. If they're rich or they're poor, they wear plaid. <laughs> they look like me. I go, if I go to Carmel or I go someplace and I walk into an art gallery, I, my shoes can be untied. I can have a ball cap on sideways and walk in and stagger around and everything. They don't know whether I'm the richest person in the world or uh, somebody that's uh, come in to do no good. Because you can't tell what wealth looks like and what people that don't have wealth anymore. So they treat me like a king. I go to lots of galleries. They treat me like I could buy something in the gallery. <laughs> so great. Listen, you do what you can. So you can't judge a book by its cover, and that's always true, and that's good counsel, and that's good advice. But it's also talking about the kind of person here who makes himself rich, yet he has nothing. He feels compelled to put on this appearance that he's rich. Got all the clothes, got the house, got the car, got the, all the whole everything, but it's all on credit. I mean, he just... Phony is a $3 bill on things. But he feels like he's got to give this appearance of this. So he looks like something, but he really isn't that. And then on the other extreme, there's, the, there's a person who is very, very rich, but he will give the appearance of being poor because he doesn't want to be hit up by anyone for any kind of money. So he just kind of lays low related to that. And so, again, both things speak of the idea that you can't really tell uh, a book uh, by its cover. Verse 8, the ransom of a man's life is his riches. You notice that we talk about ransom, we immediately think of kidnapping, don't we? Uh, Who do they kidnap in the world? They kidnap rich people. Or they're rich people's kids. Rich people say, oh, I want to be rich. And then, then you've got to buy the uh, armored Hummer. And you've got to get them into a school where the walls are up like this and the security. And you're worried about the kids all the time and everything. And everybody's thinking, isn't it great to be a billionaire? There's a lot, of, a lot that goes with a lot of different things. And I remember when I was a young boy or a young man... Um, uh, the Getty boy, remember, he got 
uh, kidnapped. And so he was either, the, I think, the grandson of the elderly Getty who was worth a fortune at that time. He's not alive anymore. And they cut off his ear, the kidnappers did, and sent it in an envelope to the friend and all, and uh, to the, the family in order to get the ransom and, and everything. But the people look to um, take advantage of uh, and victimize the rich in this kind of a way. But the poor does not even hear a rebuke. Not only does the poor not get kidnapped, who's going to kidnap a poor person? What are you going to get? But a, a, a poor person doesn't even hear a rebuke. And so the idea is with this is that, um, yeah, there's a lot of downsides and a lot of challenges to being poor, um, but uh, one of the advantages is is that you're certainly not going to be chosen to be kidnapped and, uh, and people more or less leave you alone in life. It's funny, these people sometimes where they get rich and everything, it's kind of the Elvis complex, I call it, or whatever you want to call it, where they reach a certain place and now they can't go to Disneyland like everybody else. They've got to rent the whole park after it closes. Not to, I don't know, there's a, there's, a, there's a sadness to all of that kind of thing. You and I, all we got to do is have the $250 it costs to get inside, and <laughs> we go in and have a churro for $70 and a Coke for $35, and we have the time of our life. Nobody knows we were even there. So poverty and insignificance, it does have... Uh, some advantages. The light of the righteous rejoices. And in other words, the light, uh, the life of light that's lived by the righteous. It brings joy to other people. But the lamp of the wicked will be put out. In other words, they will die early. By pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. With pride comes nothing but strife. Always. Always. The word pride, as it's used in the Bible, it means to see myself above, see myself above other people. And if I believe that about myself, then I am going to constantly feel a need to prove it. And since intrinsically I am not better than any other person, you may be better at certain things than another person, but intrinsically we're not better than any other person then I'm trying to prove something that isn't true, and I'm going to prove my superiority at the expense of others. And people notice it immediately. Every expression of pride comes at the expense of another person, and boy, do they notice when that happens. And so it's always going to result in strife. It's always going to result in in um, fighting and in difficulty. One of the hardest things about pride is that once it gets a foothold in our life is the first thing that it destroys in a person's life is their capacity to recognize the pride. I'm too proud to recognize I'm proud. That's why a person gets lifted up in pride and then they're going along in a relationship or a situation and then everything blows up. It blindsides them and they say, how in the world could I not see that coming? Pride and arrogance. You know what the lone great protection against pride is? 
It's called The Mirror of God's Word. This is a book right here. This book will never lie to any of us. You're a billionaire. How easy it is, is it for you to get the truth from people? No, no, everybody wants to be on your good side, whatever it might be. So we come to the mirror of God's Word as James describes it. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And so we begin our devotional life and God begins to put his finger on various things in our life and we realize we don't really have anything to be proud about and he humbles us through his word. And it's great protection. It's the only protection against uh, pride and it spares us a life of strife and bringing strife into other people's lives. With the well-advised is wisdom. Again, speaking about a willingness in our as a characteristic of our lives as God's people to listen to wisdom, to learn from other people. When's the last time you learned something from another person? Don't shout out. But it's a good thing to have search our lives. It's important to be teachable. I'm convinced that there is something to learn in every relationship and Virtually every circumstance we ever find ourselves in life, even in every conversation we find ourselves, it may teach us what not to say and what not to do, as well as what to do and glean wisdom. But all of life is teaching. All of life is instructing. And we ought to be lifelong learners to that voice. And so the importance of being willing to learn from one another and how much more in the body of Christ, iron sharpening iron, and growing deeper in our relationship with the Lord and stronger in our relationship with the Lord. And, of course, fellowship with Jesus himself in that relationship, that's the ultimate iron sharpening iron. We'll always be learning because Jesus, if Jesus is the standard for the Christian life, and he is, then there's always going to be room for growth. In our, in our lives. And so the importance of being uh, willing to listen to the advice uh, that others give that leads to wisdom and, uh, and, and being teachable in our lives. We'll stop there tonight. And I want us to have some time now to partake of the Lord's Supper. I'd like you to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as we introduce the Lord's Supper tonight.